You got to stand up with me for a second. There are golf claps and there are Super Bowl game-winning catch claps, and that was definitely a golf clap. <laughs> where you don't want to disturb, you know, anybody. Let's uh, let's just praise Jesus. Put your hands together. Let's praise Him. He is good. He is glorious. Let's pray. We praise you, Jesus. We praised you with our voices. We praise you with our hands. Lord, allow your spirit to transform our hearts so we can praise you with the meditations of our heart, our minds, our lives. Let our praise for you be so loud that a lost world cannot ignore it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. If you have your Bibles, open it with me to Joshua. So there have been three... Uh, three installments of the book of Joshua. The first installment was Joshua entering into the promised land with the Israelites. The second installment was Joshua and the Israelites fighting to take possession of the land. And now we are entering into the third installment of the book of Joshua, the third phase. And this is the allocation of the land to the tribes. And I read Joshua 15 about three times in my devotional this past week. And at first, at first glance, it is absolutely one of those chapters that you just skip right over. But it is, it is extraordinarily inspiring when we understand what it means for us today. Let's just read the first four verses of Joshua chapter 15. Verse 1, the allotment for the tribe of the people of Judah, the allotment. So they entered the land, they fought for the land, and now they're in this geographical vicinity, roughly 300,000 square miles. And now these 12 tribes are receiving their inheritance as Joshua and the leadership of Israel are allocating geographical sections to each of the 12 tribes of Israel. It is the allocation or the allotment of the promised land that they entered and they fought for. Chapter 15, verse 1, Joshua. The allotment of the tribe of the people of Judah. This tribe, incidentally, is the tribe that our Lord and Savior was born out of. According to their clans, reached southward to the boundary of Edom. To the wilderness of Zin, the furthest south. And their south boundary ran from the end of the Salt Sea, from the bay that faces southward. It goes on southward of the ascent of Akhtabim, passes along to Zin, and goes up south of Kadesh Barnea, along by Hezron, up to Adar, turns about to Karkah. It passes along to Asmon, goes out by the brooks of Egypt, and comes to its end at the sea. This shall be your south boundary. And then they go on to describe the east boundary, and the west boundary would be the Mediterranean Sea. And in very great detail, the land that's allocated toward the tribe one of the 12 tribes of Judah is described throughout Joshua chapter 15. 
we move on to Joshua chapter 16, and we read in great detail the allotments to the people of Joseph, the tribe of Joseph. We move on to chapter 17, verse 1, and we read of the allotment or the allocation of the land made to the tribe, the other half-tribe of Manasseh. And we go on in chapter 19 and verse 1, and we read of the lot that came out for the tribe of Simeon, and so on it goes for all of the 12 tribes. The allocation of their land was described to them in great detail, laborious detail. And what is the point for us today? The point for us today is that we know that this is a picture of our inheritance. As Joshua entered into the promised land with the children of Israel, so we cross the Jordan River, we're baptized in Christ, and we enter into a relationship with Christ. And as they were promised a land, we were promised all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms, which are ours in Christ Jesus today. We've said throughout this series that the New Testament counterpart to the book of Joshua is the book of Ephesians, as it unpacks our promised land and our relationship with Christ, our identity in Christ, our power in Christ, our peace in Christ, our authority in Christ, our righteousness in Christ, our joy in Christ, our prayer life in Christ. But we see in Joshua 15 onward, that each individual member of the children of Israel were given a special inheritance. The promised land were the Israelites, as we are given a corporate blessing in Christ. We are baptized into Christ. We cross the Jordan River, and therefore we are part of the capital C universal church. But also... We are given a special inheritance. There's a special allocation to each member of the body of Christ. And this inheritance is our place and giftings and calling and anointing in in a specific local church community. So, this was prophesied. This is a foreshadowing. As the tribes are allocated land, so you are allocated spiritual gifting. So you are allocated an assignment in the local church, the body of Christ. And this was foreshadowed not only in Joshua, but all the way through the Old Testament. God is constantly foreshadowing that His agenda through the redeemed Souls of men bought by the blood of Jesus on the cross. His agenda is to create a kingdom. Not by men invading land and raising up a new banner over that land. But his agenda through redeemed men, women, boys and girls bought by the blood of Jesus is God invading hearts and raising up a new spirit in those hearts. Let's read about this foreshadowing of the kingdom of God in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 and 27. And we read, God says, I will give to you a new spirit. I will remove from you your heart of stone. 
and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to follow my ways. And so this is how God is raising up a new kingdom. It's not by men invading land and raising up a new flag. It's by God's spirit invading hearts and raising up a new nature. And he goes on throughout scripture to prophesy of this kingdom. A kingdom of God where men and women are unified and protected, not by geographical terrain, but by the spirit of Christ himself. As we read in Psalm chapter 100 and verse 33, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity, when they're one. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. It's this unity, this oneness through men, women, boys, and girls created not by the geographical land that we occupy and that gives us shelter, but by the Spirit of Christ who indwells our heart. And throughout the Old Testament, God continues to foreshadow His kingdom on earth. A kingdom, not with rules and laws and position and prestige and ladders to climb, but a kingdom governed by the law of love, because the culture is Christ himself. Is this not a beautiful kingdom? A kingdom governed by the law of love, because the culture is Christ himself. And we read this foreshadowing in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6 through 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing, the nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra. Can you imagine that? You have, have a, you know, a nine-month-old baby. You're not, like, get, you're not like, get away from that, from that snake's den. You'll be just fine with your child playing by a cobra's den. The weaned child shall be next to the, the, to, to the snake's home. They shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is a prophecy of when Christ establishes kingdom, but it's also heaven on earth now through his kingdom, through something that he calls the church. Is this not beautiful? God has an ambition God has a passion. The book of Joshua is a picture of this. And as the children of Israel are inheriting their promised land, that's a picture that you have an inheritance in the kingdom that God is establishing. You've been given an inheritance. And once they were given their geographical terrain, they had to work that land. They had to cultivate that land in order to bring forth a harvest. And in the same way, we are given an inheritance in God's kingdom. And that inheritance is a calling to a local church family, and it's spiritual gifts to serve in the local church family. We're given an inheritance, that inheritance is our place in a local church, and then we are to work that land, we are to cultivate that land in order to bring forth a harvest for the glory of God, 
the edification of the church family and to bring forth a harvest for the hope of the world. And then from the seed of that blossomed out of the tribe of Judah, Jesus was born. And when he was about 30, he was baptized. And he went into the wilderness and overcame temptation as he fasted and prayed 40 days. And he walked out of the wilderness filled, the Bible says, with the power of the Spirit. And his very first sermon, I will quote it for you verbatim, his very first sermon was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom, not men invading geographical land, but a kingdom where the Spirit of God invades the hearts of men, women, boys, and girls. Repent for a kingdom, not of men raising up a new flag over, over a geographical terrain, but repent for a kingdom where God raises up a new banner, a new nature in the hearts of men and women. Repent for a kingdom, not where men and women are governed and coerced by laws, but repent for a kingdom where the law of love will reign and the culture will be my very nature. Repent for a kingdom, not that is protected by geographical terrain and where people find their identity in geographical vicinities, but repent for a kingdom where the spirit of Christ will be our unifying bond. Repent for this kingdom that's been prophesied all throughout scripture is very, very close. Now, of course, there is misunderstanding about that. Some people thought that Jesus was referring to an earthly kingdom. And so, Jesus' initial followers that came around ranged in the social strata from fishermen to tax collectors to zealots. These zealots were rough guys. There's a modern-day movie out today, a really rough movie about the drug cartel in Mexico called Sicario. Do you know what Sicario means? The word Sicario comes from a Hebrew word, Sicar, the Sicar knife that the zealots used in first century Palestine. Literally hundreds and even thousands of Romans were killed during the festivals in Jerusalem with the zealots' Sicar knives. People who didn't adhere to the law were killed by these zealots' Sicar knives. They would wear these long robes. They would have hoods over their heads. They would have a Sicar knife hidden under their robe. There would be a Roman soldier walking in front of them. And right as he would get to an alleyway, they would pull out the Sicar knife. It's a short knife with the, the, the angles that hooks. And he would come up behind him, and he would stab him from the back, and he would pierce his heart, and then fling him into the alley so that nobody would know. These zealots were rough. They hated Rome. They wanted to overthrow Rome. So zealots began circling around Jesus with the hope, not that he was going to give them a seminary degree. They began circling around Jesus with the hope that he was going to overthrow Rome and they were going to establish a new kingdom, which is why Jesus' followers were constantly, in the three and a half years they followed Jesus, Peter, James, John, who we know today as these mighty apostles, they were fleshly, worldly, carnal, hateful, bigoted, ambitious young men. And they were always fighting over and arguing and debating over who was the greatest and who would have the highest position. And Jesus said, repent 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He oftentimes was greatly misunderstood that it was going to be an earthly kingdom. It was not an earthly kingdom. It was a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom not of geographical, geographical terrain, but a kingdom built up of the souls of men purchased with his own blood on the cross. Oh, but if they would have listened closely, they would have known that Jesus was talking about a spiritual kingdom. Because interwoven in most every one of Jesus' dissertations was some prophetic reference to this spiritual kingdom that was close. It was so close. It was very close. And oftentimes Jesus would give these rapid-fire, back-to-back word pictures about this kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like a man sowing seed. The kingdom of heaven is like... A master who had servants and he allocated talents. The kingdom of heaven is like a lump of dough and it has this yeast in it. The kingdom of heaven is like somebody who is in a field and they find a treasure and they sell everything and they buy the whole field. The kingdom of heaven is like, and he's constantly referencing the kingdom of heaven in his major dissertations and he's constantly referencing the kingdom of heaven in these word pictures. But I believe when you sort of string together everything that Jesus envisioned in relation to the kingdom of heaven, it oftentimes doesn't look anything like what we think church ought to look like today. Because all throughout history, men put their minds to build a church, and it oftentimes looks like either the corporate culture from which they came or the governmental culture in which they live. It's kind of like if you go into a restaurant and you say, yes, I would like, I would like the grilled salmon, and they bring you a hamburger. You're like, oh, I'm sorry, I ordered the grilled salmon. And they're like, yeah, I know that, but my favorite's the hamburger. I just thought, that, I just, I just thought you'd want to try it. And you're like, I don't want a hamburger. If I wanted a hamburger, I would have stopped off at Whataburger. I want, I want a grilled salmon. Like, just, just try it. Just try it. It's my favorite. You'll, you'll, you'll like it. Would that be frustrating? And I believe that that's probably what Jesus gets oftentimes. He dreamt of the church. He communicated of the church, the kingdom of heaven on earth. But oftentimes we say, but this is what we created for you. But this is what we want. This is what we envision. This is what we think that it should look like. And he says, look, I, I understand that's, that's, that's fine, but that's not what I ordered. It's not what I want. It looks nothing like what I want. What does Jesus want when he when he dreams about the kingdom of heaven on earth. First and foremost, it is a place where praise, where praise will rise. The kingdom of heaven is first and foremost a place where praise will rise unto his name, unto his work on the cross, unto his Father in heaven. This kingdom of heaven, first and foremost, is a place where praise will rise as assuredly as every morning the sun rises until it is blazing like the noonday sun, and especially in August, it cannot be ignored, but it is a force that must be reckoned with. The church, the kingdom of heaven on earth is a place where the sun rises among us through praise. Praise will rise, and our praise should never be ignored. It must be a force to be reckoned with because our praise flows from a heart that's completely surrendered, completely sold out to Christ, completely in love with Christ. 
The church is made up of individual members who comprise this collective body. And every time we assemble, this must be a place where praise rises. And when we leave from here, our lives must be a temple where praise rises. As we read in Romans 12, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Offer your bodies on the, on the altar as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This, the Bible says, one translation is your reasonable service. And another translation, this is your spiritual worship. In other words, when we put those two interpretations together, the least we can do is to worship Christ with our whole lives, with complete surrender. And when we assemble, praise must rise. John chapter 4, verse 24, the Samaritan woman had a question about where true worship was. She was a Samaritan, so she was uh, prevented from entering into the temple to worship. So the Samaritans worshiped on the mountain where Moses communed with God on Sinai. The Jews worshiped in the temple that Solomon built. They said, where is true worship? And Jesus said in John 4, I'll tell you the truth, the time is coming and now is when worship won't be about the mountain and worship won't be about the temple, but those who worship God will worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, it's not going to be about a location. It's going to be about hearts that are transformed because the spirit of Christ has invaded our heart. When Jesus spoke of his kingdom on earth, he spoke of a place where praise rises in true worship. When Jesus spoke of the church, he spoke of a place where love will reign deeper than family. The disciples who again thought that it was going to be about an earthly kingdom, and they constantly argued about who was the greatest, about who would have the greatest position of leadership, and so forth and so on. After three and a half years of following Jesus on the eve of his crucifixion, after three and a half years of hearing the sermons, of watching the miracles, of watching his whole disposition and demeanor, after three and a half years on the eve of his crucifixion, do you realize they were still arguing about who among them was the greatest and who would have the highest positions of authority and influence in his kingdom? Now, how did Jesus respond to that? I believe with a sigh. And he got up at the dinner table, and he took off his outer garment, and he wrapped a servant's towel around his waist, which was incredibly humbling. And one by one, he washed the disciples' feet. And he said, in Luke chapter 22, verse 6, it's after, after that particular happening in Luke 22, he said, Look, I came to you to serve you. Should you not much more be ambitious about serving one another? You know, at one time, the children ran to Jesus and the disciples tried to prevent him. And he said, such is the kingdom of heaven. This is, this is what my kingdom on earth is going to look like. It's a place where children are greatly esteemed. It's a place where children will be leaders. It's a place where servanthood and humility will reign as family. And it's a place where light will shine. 
It's a place where light will shine because the light isn't the noonday sun. The light is going to be the spirit of Christ himself and the light will shine for a lost and dying community. Jesus alluded to this in Matthew chapter 5 verse 14 through 16 when he said, you are the light of the world. You. They're like, well, I get you're the light of the world, Jesus. And he's like, yeah, yes, I am. But, but when my kingdom is established, my spirit will be in you. Therefore, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill shall not be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. No, instead they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Jesus is saying, my kingdom will be a place where praise will rise, will love, where love will reign. It will be a place where light will shine for a lost and dying community. And it will be a place where power will flow to edify one another. And Jesus spoke of this power. In John chapter 14, when he said, Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Let's just think about that for a second. Jesus raised the dead. He healed the sick. He walked on water. He calmed the storms. And Jesus said, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and even greater works then these he will do because I am going to the Father. Wow. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by that? It's, in a, it's a reference to his kingdom on earth. And Jesus is saying, when I establish a kingdom, it will be a place that spreads like wildfire, consuming everything in its path with healing, wholeness, and hope. Because it will be a place where praise will rise, where love will reign, where light will shine, and where power will flow. And he continued to talk about the kingdom of heaven on earth. And the crowds began to swarm. And Jesus continued to preach and to cast vision about this kingdom of heaven on earth. And he began, and he continued to demonstrate through his own life, through his own demeanor, and all power and authority as an individual, what this collective body would look like. And the crowds began to swell, and some people actually got it. And hopes began to increase. Well... Religious leaders also began to get jealous, and authorities began to take note, and bribes were made, and lies were told, and Jesus was arrested, and his followers scattered like confused, scared kids, and Jesus was crucified, and they buried him, and they rolled a stone over the grave. Man, that was that. It was good while it lasted. It was an exciting vision that he communicated. Or so they thought that was that. Because three days later, Jesus was quickened to life. The stone was rolled away. 
And then Jesus eventually stood before his wide-eyed followers and he said, the dream that I told you about, the kingdom that I kept talking about, well, the dream is on, the vision is on. And he ascended into heaven and they were uh, thrilled, but they were bewildered and they were huddled together in this upper room, about 120 of them at this time. And they were praying and they were pouring their heart out to God. And then the spirit of Christ, the same spirit that spoke creation into existence, the same spirit that Christ functioned in the same spirit that rose Christ from the grave, that spirit fell upon them and entered them and completely transformed them. You realize after three and a half years of Christ's followers following Christ and remaining completely unchristlike, in an instant when the spirit of Christ entered them, they became so Christ-like that these kids who scattered, these disciples who scattered like scared kids were no longer fearful and hiding and lying and ambitious and bigoted and jockeying for position. Instead, they stood at Pentecost in front of every tribe and nation and proclaimed God's praises with bold, with boldness and authority, with no care or concern for their own life. And in a day, 3,000 people were saved, and that created the very first body of Christ, kingdom of heaven on earth, and we call it the church. And we read about this in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. And we read that they devoted themselves. This, do you realize what this is? These 3,000 plus people from every tribe and nation, because people from all over the world were in Jerusalem at Pentecost. And they got saved. This is, this is the embodiment of everything that Jesus was preaching and teaching and admonishing and modeling for his entire ministry. And now they all have the spirit of Christ. They are all one. And now they are living out this thing called the kingdom of heaven on earth. And we read, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And awe, awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved and I first got introduced to this very first community of God's people on earth embodying the mission of Christ with the heart of Christ for the glory of Christ when I was studying business finance in college and I began reasoning as led by the Holy Spirit. Is Christ still alive? Yes. Is Christ still in the business of redeeming lost and perishing souls with his own blood? Yes. Does this Holy Spirit still have his stuff? Yes. Is God still sovereign and on his throne? Yes. Is there still a lost and dying world all around us? Yes. 
then why can't there be a community today like this in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47? And I told the Lord, I could care less about my business degree. I could care less about starting a business. I could care less about anything in this world. I just pray, Lord, that I would be your hands, your feet, your voice. Use me to build a church and a community that needs you, that looks like Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. And I believe that many of you have not yet prayed. Use me to be part of this, to beautify this, to build this, to edify this, to expand this. Many of you have not yet said, use me for a handful of excuses. One, you've been sidelined from great effectiveness in the body of Christ due to distraction. Perhaps you're distracted by some lesser vision, cheaper vision, temporal vision, self-centered vision, but not this eternal vision. You've been sidetracked you've been, because you've been distracted by a temporal, lesser, superficial vision. Or perhaps you've decided to approach the church in a very different manner than Jesus approached the church. How did Jesus create the church? By counting the costs with his dignity, with his life, by shedding his blood on the cross. The church was created with blood, and the church is sustained, and the church is expanded as we count the cost and make sacrifices. And some, I think, have been approaching the church like it's a buffet. I'll outsource my children to this ministry. I'll outsource my youth to this ministry. I'll outsource my discipleship to this ministry. Um, I'll pay here. I'll give to this opportunity. I'll listen to this preacher. And what we've done when we outsource the church, we approach church as a consume, with a consumerism perspective rather than a cost-counting, cross-bearing perspective. Jesus has never commanded us to approach the church with a consumerism perspective. Jesus says, count the cost, pick up your cross, and follow me daily. And as we approach the church with a consumerism mentality, it absolutely destroys your progress in your sanctification of Christ-likeness. Because you never have to lead. You never have to step up. You never have to teach. You never have to shepherd. You simply outsource your spirituality, and you get poured into here, 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 and here. And it stunts your spiritual maturity. And it absolutely hinders the church. And I believe it grieves the heart of God. Because as his spirit is flowing through you, it's blocked. And his spirit was never meant to be this reservoir that's contained within us. His spirit is intended to be a river that flows to to us and through us and bursts into a lost and dying world. But when you approach church with a consumerism mentality, the ministering and anointing power of the Holy Spirit is blocked in you. I believe distractions prevent us from beautifying the church. I believe opposition can sideline some people from beautifying the church. 
as the ten spies came back and said, yes, it's a beautiful land, but there's giants. Some people say, yes, the church is a beautiful concept, but there's giants, and there are oppositions. There's setbacks, there's discouragements, there's frustrations. I mean, you can watch your favorite preacher on TV. You can go to the, to the mega church conference, but that's kind of like a housewife trying to compete with the girl on the cover of Cosmopolitan magazine. I mean, it's like your best face forward. There's no, there's no conflict. There's no confrontation. There's no uh, disagreements. There's no frustration. There's no disappointments. But I know this about opposition. Opposition will not go the distance. Sometimes when a fighter is fighting a big guy who hits hard in a boxing ring, he says, if I can just go the distance, because I don't think this guy, he throws heavy punches, but he can't go the distance. And sure enough, beyond round seven, this guy runs out of steam. And in the same way, there is no giant, there is no opposition that you have ever faced that can go the distance. Only through the spirit of Christ can we go the distance. Our opposition can never go the distance, which means all you have to do is not give up. And whatever opposition is coming against you, again, all you have to do is not give up. And whatever opposition comes against you, I promise as God is my witness, as my life is a testimony, that opposition will run out of steam. Galatians 6, 9 still says, do not grow weary in doing good. For in due season, you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. Isaiah 40, 31 still says, but those that waited upon the Lord, those that didn't give up, will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. I believe that the next factor that causes some people to be sidelined from beautifying and building and pouring their life into the ministry are imperfections. Positionally, we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Practically, relationally, we're all in a process of sanctification. That means that we're all working out. The Spirit of Christ is working the character of Christ out in our lives. And when two believers who are both in a sanctification process and two believers will always and forever be in a sanctification process until they die and they trade in sanctification for glorification. But until you've died and traded in sanctification for glorification, the Spirit of Christ is still working out the character of Christ. And when two believers who are in the process of sanctification are in the same room, there's going to be frustration. There's going to be disappointment. There's going to be uh, mistakes. There's going to be failure. Sparks are going to fly. I know people say, oh, I'm just going to avoid the church altogether because you know what? Those people... And I say, you know what, that is A, it's completely unbiblical, it's selfish, and, and also, you will never grow. Because the Bible tells us that iron sharpens iron, sparks have got to fly. I have got to make mistakes in order for Matt to grow in Christ's likeness to forgive me. I've got to be frustrating in order for Ed to grow in Christ's likeness and bear with me. I've got to go through some struggles in order in my life in order for Stephen to go through to, to increase in Christ's likeness and bear my burdens. We can't grow in Christ's likeness if we're not forgiving and enduring and bearing with one another. 
I believe that another reason that many people are sidelined are temptations. Man, that's a shiny light, but like a moth to a bug zapper or a mosquito to a bug zapper at a picnic. Man, there's always a way of, of escape. Don't go to that shiny light. It will kill, still, and destroy, as Jesus said, your joy and your passion, your zeal, and your heart for the things that God has a heart for. And another reason that we are sidelined is opposition, or I'm sorry, condemnation. There's condemnation of the enemy. Who are you to think you can serve? Who are you to pray for them? Who are you to serve in ministry? Who, who are you to, to boldly share your faith? Who are you to raise your hands high and, and worship Christ? I'll tell you exactly who you are. You're a child of God, bought with the blood of Christ. You are redeemed. And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now less condemnation than before you were a Christian. Oh, I got that wrong? There's no condemnation. Is that it? Yeah. There is therefore now no condemnation, not less. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because we're the righteousness of Christ. So what does that look like for us today? 2018, Hope Works Fellowship. One, this is a place where praise is rising. Hebrews 10, 25. Don't forsake yourself, the assembly of believers, as some are in the habit of doing. This is a place where praise unto Christ is rising. This is a place where praise unto Christ is rising corporately. And when we walk out and go about our lives in the world and in the workplace, this is a place where praise is rising. And any time throughout Scripture... When an assembly of believers came together, there was a great deal of power. There was a weightiness. The glory of God was among us. The glory of God was among the believers. And the glory of God is among us when we come together with a desire to encourage one another and praise Jesus, and with a lost and dying friend, a hell-bound friend on our arm who desperately needs Christ. This is a place where praise is rising. Secondly, this is a place where love is reigning. We read in Acts chapter 14 and verse 22 that the church... And Paul, and Paul was very, very ambitious about this. I mean, he was shipwrecked twice. Um, he was stoned, I, I believe, at least a couple of times. He was beat with rods. He, he, he got the 39 lashes a, a few times. I mean, he was, he was attacked, he was in danger, and he was, he was hungry, he was cold. There were always threats upon his life, and yet he gave up a very successful career that was rubbish, as he called it, to a life of suffering because he was absolutely passionate about creating a group of believers who lived out and embodied Jesus to one another and a lost and dying world. Look at his passion in Acts 14, 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, we're going to go through many tribula tribulations as we're living out this thing called the church. But we continue to endure and we continue to persevere. But like a family, we keep showing up and encouraging one another and loving one another. 
This is a place where the glory of Jesus raises, but this is also rises, but this is also a place where love, like a family, reigns. We are called to be a family. And, and not just sort of a kind of a kind of a theoretical family, kind of like a fraternity in college or something like that. No, no, no. It's a family that runs deeper than blood. It's a family in which binds us. We are a family bound by the spirit of Christ. That is the most eternal and long-lasting bond that there could ever be. We are a family. And we're to encourage one another. And this really plays out in homes. When we walk out these things called home groups. And this really plays out in smaller settings. When we get into each other's lives. Church is not a place that we go to. Church is something that we are to one another as a family. And this also is a place where light is shining. It's a place where the light of Christ is shining for the glory of Christ and the gospel. Let's look at Romans chapter 10, verse 15. And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And that's just for people like... You know, like you see graduate from seminary or that kind of thing, right? No, it's for everybody who's a member of the body of Christ. We are to all preach the gospel. And fourthly, this is a place where power is flowing. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. Each one of you should use whatever gift you have received. You realize this is your inheritance? The tribe of Judah was given a geographical area. The other half-tribe of Manasseh was given and allocated a geographical area. And so it goes with the 12 tribes. You are giving a very, listen, a very specific inheritance. And that inheritance is your spiritual gifts. Will you receive that inheritance? Will you cultivate that inheritance? And cause that inheritance to bring forth fruitfulness for the glory of Christ? Will you? This is very practical. Will you? Are you? And will you? There's a connect card in front of you. It's in your weekly guide. So if you would get that, and if you would take that out right now. Are you living out this thing called the church? Or have you been sidelined because of specific opposition, because of some temptation, because of condemnation? Have you been sidelined? because of some distraction, some lesser vision? Or will you live out this thing called the church? Will you be Christ's hands and feet? And, you know, I'll tell you what, I, I I appreciate you just being here. I really do. I do. I know there's a hundred other places you could be. And I truly and sincerely appreciate you being here. But Jesus has so much more in store for you than to simply be here. He wants you to be the church. He doesn't want you simply to go to the church. He wants you to be the church. Will you do that? Are you in this thing called family? In community? Wednesday night deeper, Saturday morning, one of our home groups? Are you there? If not, then check. Put a check. I'm interested in a home group. Perhaps it's... Perhaps it's time that some of you stop 
outsourcing your ministry and stunting your spiritual growth. And perhaps it's, perhaps it's time you step up and say, I'm going to lead. As Paul said, look, some of you need to be taught the elementary principles of the truth when you should be teachers by now. So maybe you need to lead. Maybe you need to teach. You have a spiritual gift. Are you using that spiritual gift in the work of the ministry to build the body of Christ up? Are you constantly, always reaching out to people, looking for opportunities to share your faith with people who don't yet know Christ, and then doing whatever it takes to get them here to hear the gospel or to lead them to Christ before they get here? Again, I I appreciate you being here. Some of you should be teachers by now. I appreciate you being here, but Jesus wants so much more for you. He wants you to be the church. You say, but that scares me. Yes, of course. We always have to live where we're taking terrifying steps of faith out of the boat and walking on water. Where if Christ doesn't carry us, we sink. And what happens is when you take this shaky and terrifying but entirely dependent step out of the boat, you realize this is what life is all about right here, to walk by faith. To pour my life, as Paul put it, I am being poured out like a drink offering. To pour my life out like a drink offering for the very dream that Jesus died for. And that dream wasn't just forgiving your sins and getting your soul to heaven. That dream was getting heaven on earth to your completely surrendered soul as you pour into this thing called the local church. See, a little bit of faith will take your soul to heaven. That's, that's awesome. But a whole lot of faith will bring heaven down into your soul for a lost and dying world to see it now. And that is amazing. So, Jeremy, come on up. Thank you, Shane. I just, I had an impression that I wanted to speak to some of you out here today. Um, If anybody in here is hearing from Shane that you just have to buckle up and try a little harder, you've got it wrong. It's not about our willpower. It's not about our strength within ourselves. It's absolutely in everything to do with the surrender to the word of God. Okay? I want to encourage you because what Shane's talking about, being a part of this body and this community that burdens life together, lives and builds one another up, this church that Jesus talked about, there is no such thing without Christ, without him being Lord of our mind, with him being Lord of where I put my eyes, what I listen to, what I read, right? What I do with my feet and my hands. If Christ is not Lord, then all that we do is in vain. This thing that we call church, the the activities that we do, do we just let it become this uh, routine that happens in our life? Is church only a Sunday thing that I go to listen to a man tell me how to worship my God? Or is it something that's in you that you say, I want to know who Christ is and that love and surrender to his word 
propels a life of righteousness, propels a life that you can brag and boast about the God that you say that you worship. You hear me? This is not a routine. This is not a habit. This is not, I can, I can somehow try a little harder in my own strength to be a better person and to not drink and to not look at pornography and to not gossip and to not be angry. It's not me building up my own strength and my own power. It's saying, God, you deserve worship. You deserve me to look unto you for all. Not trying harder. God, you deserve this body. You deserve these eyes. You deserve where they look. You deserve these hands where they are put. You deserve these feet where they walk. You deserve this mouth in what it says to other people. You deserve it, oh God. That's the heart that Shane is referring to. The root of our problem, these four things that Shane is talking about, this is truth. But the root of that is, where is your worship? Are you worshiping God? Are you worshiping Christ? Or are you worshiping yourself? Is this for me? Am I here as a consumer to better myself? Or do I worship the one and true and only living God? That alone should be our mandate. That alone should drive us to wake up every single day. And if it is not, then we are not the church. I just want to pray for every single person that's struggling with addiction, that's struggling with getting out of a mindset of their life where everything revolves around them. I want to pray for you who are broken inside and you can't get past the, the, the sadness and the loneliness that life has served you. I want to pray for you who... You don't know what it means to get up and to worship God and to look unto him for life. That, that's foreign. I want to pray for you who, when you hear about the power of God, you have no idea what that means and what we're talking about. I want to pray for you who, when we talk about the joy of the Lord sustaining me and keeping me, you don't know what that joy means. You pretend because you think if you just pretend long enough that somehow, some way, It'll just happen. I want to pray for you that the Lord invade your heart and that your eyes are turned unto his word, turned unto Christ Jesus, the living Jesus Christ for life. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. There is no life without him. It's either death or Christ. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, God, you see your people here today. God, we bow our knee before you and we declare that you are the only God worth serving. You are the only God worth praying to. You are the only God worth living to. You said in your word that we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for him who died for us. What a beautiful picture of love, God, that you gave your own life for us. You died you shed blood, you endured the wrath of Almighty God on sin for me, for your children here, God. You did it for them because you love them and you called them your children. Bless them, O oh God, turn their minds and their eyes unto you. 
cause them to see Jesus Christ as exalted. Cause them to know what it means to have the joy of the Lord be their strength. Cause them, Lord, to know what it means to have you as friend. Cause them, Lord, to know what it means to surrender unto you and have freedom. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, come against the lies of the enemy right now in this room. Rebuke the devil, O God, in the name of Jesus Christ. Deliver us from evil. Deliver us from ourselves, Lord. Deliver us from every hindrance that we have to know who you are. We bless your name, God. You are so amazing. Show us what your love is like in our heart. We need it. And we admit that we don't always know what it looks like. We admit that we don't really want your love sometimes. We want it in different ways. We admit that before you, God. But we need to know what your love feels like. We need to know who you are. Break us free in the name of Jesus. Amen. Henry, Henry Green. Come on up, buddy. So this is Henry. You guys, uh, when, when I look at Henry, as I look at so many of you guys, I think of, um, man, this is why Jesus died, to, to create the church, so praise can flow. When I look at you, I think, this is why Jesus died, to create the church, so praise can flow. So as Henry sings, I would just like to think about, I would like for you to think about how the Holy Spirit is leading you to dive into the work of the ministry and continue on as Christ's hands and feet. Um, I'd just like to say, thank you, Pastor. I'd just like to say uh, uh, to the church, because I've been coming here a long time, and some, some of y'all might be aware of me already, and I don't know, maybe some new members here. But uh, the Lord really been working in my life, and I'm trying to make this short, short and brief, but it's important, and it's on my heart. So, but, uh, you know, I, I'm kind of struggling. We all struggle, I guess, in children of God, and I'm struggling right now with certain things in my life. I haven't done nothing like I'm standing or nothing wrong against nobody or nothing, but we just have things, situations in our life that we caught up in, we didn't with. And I'm trying to get over and ask the Lord to help me. And I want the church to play with me, pray with me too, because there's a couple of things in my life that I need. I don't know how to go about it, but I'm trying to go about it the right way. But uh, my point of saying this is that I know we got a loving God, like Pastor saying, a, a healing God, a, a forgiving God, and most of all, an understanding God. <laughs> it hurts. <laughs> Every sometimes because nobody understands, but God understands our thing. And I keep trying, I'm trying, I'm just dealing with it. I want y'all to pray for me. Pray for me in there, you know, that I overcome that, you know, to deal with it. But I love all, all of y'all and everybody. And I'm trying, but I have a song to sing. Everybody, but it's a, it's a, uh, Lord, lead, lead me on, lead me on, Lord, lead me on, Lord, lead me on, and make me strong. 
try hard, Lord, to go your way. So I pray, Lord, lead me on, Lord, keep me strong, Lord, so I can make it back home. I can't do it on my own. I don't try much too long. And every time, Lord, I go wrong. So I'm praying, Lord, just keep me strong, Lord. Lead me on, Lord, so I can make it, Lord, make it home. If you guys would stand with me, and I'd like to ask Ed and Tarek, uh, Tarek back there at the back, and Ed and Jeremy and Brad Wright, um, Shanda and um, Claire, just just stand up front here, and. What we're going to do, and we have a couple of ladies up here and some brothers, they just spread out all the way across, just all the way across. And as the worship team begins leading us in worship, I invite you to enter into worship and just praise Jesus. And Tarek and Claire, if you guys could just kind of maybe come on over to this side. Just praise Jesus. And also, as, as Henry mentioned, he said, you know, I've got something got something I need you to pray for. It's hard. It's hard. Just come forward and just get prayer. You know, what, whatever it is. Maybe there's some sin pattern, some addiction, some sadness. Maybe, maybe what I was talking about, you want to be anointed. You want to be used by God. Um, you want to love Jesus like you've never loved him before. But whatever it is, there's some people up here who are just going to pray with you specifically. So I just want to invite you to worship Jesus and also want to invite you to Come down here and just be prayed over. Just don't leave here the same. The stakes are too high. Just don't leave the same. And um, if you've got to slip out, you're welcome to slip out. Otherwise, stick around and worship, and please come, come receive prayer. Father, let your spirit move in our hearts, and we pray in Jesus' name that none of us would leave the same. In Jesus' name. Amen.